Hello and welcome to Reddit Readings in episode 75. Hope everyone had a good start to the new year. In this episode we are covering the posts on r slash explain like I'm 5. Enjoy. Now streaming, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor, welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift Vieira's Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. User Hervayu asked the following question. You're not supposed to defrost meats in warm water due to harmful bacteria growth. You're not supposed to leave food at room temperature for long without being refrigerated because of harmful growth but, when you go to a buffet, food can sit out for hours under heat lamps and be fine? User Chell underscore of underscore the underscore C answered with the following comment. There's a concept in food safety called the danger zone. It extends from about 40 Fahrenheit slash 5 Celsius to about 140 Fahrenheit slash 60 Celsius. You can keep food below the lower end of that range, or above the upper end, for a while without it going bad. The reason is that this is approximately the range of temperatures that the bacteria that cause foodborne illness can tolerate well enough to grow. They can survive in lower temps, but they won't grow or will grow very slowly, which is why you can store meat in the fridge for a few days without problems. They'll die at higher temps if they're kept that hot for a while, as in sous vide cooking, but can survive brief exposure. The food at the buffet is, at least supposed to be, kept above 140 Fahrenheit 60 Celsius, so that whatever bacteria may be present can't grow effectively. The trays at a buffet usually sit above a pool of very hot water in addition to the heat lamps, which keeps them hot. This is if the food does stay out for hours. It may simply be changed out regularly, in which case it can be kept in the danger zone. You can take the keep it above the upper end of the range principle really far, because temps above 140 Fahrenheit 60 Celsius will kill almost all bacteria with prolonged exposure. This is the principle behind perpetual stews, foods which were effectively cooked for years or decades. User Red Deadeiter further added, I have a master's in public health. I'm a registered sanitarian in the Commonwealth of KY, and worked as a food safety inspector for years at a local government health department. All these statements are absolutely correct. Time, temperature controls are one of the primary control points in food safety. Food ready to be served may be kept at or above 135 degrees Fahrenheit or discarded after 4 hours if temperature controls are not used not preferred but still allowed under many state food codes. However documentation on time controls including a time log must be on site and in use user FL Sun commented this on the same topic. The things you must have seen during inspections. 
could you show up unannounced? Or did you have to give notice of an inspection beforehand? I used to do pest control both residential and commercial. And some of those restaurants, OMG. One I remember pulling up to. We were instructed to park in the back because they didn't want people seeing our truck there. I get out of my truck and sitting outside closer to the dumpster than the building were about six five-gallon buckets full of water and frozen chicken and fish defrosting. On a 98-degree Florida afternoon, the roaches were everywhere, even running along the windowsills where customers are sitting in a booth. I would tell the guys in the kitchen they really needed to get that piece of chicken out from behind the fryer because I've been reporting it for the last three weeks. Sheet cakes would be left out overnight uncovered and in the morning they would shoo the roaches away. Cleaning the kitchen floor consisted of hosing the floor down with plain water and then pick out the big junk and squeegee the water into the floor drain. No mop. No soap. The only products I would use inside the building was food-grade diatomaceous earth and only in approved areas. A gel bait containing fipronil in cracks and crevices away from food prep areas and an IGR, insect growth regulator, inside wall cavities and such. And ultraviolet fly traps with the sticky pads inside and not the zappers. One night I get there just as they are closing and I bring in my equipment and start using a gel bait near the window between the kitchen and the waitress stand. As I'm doing that the owner grabs the tank of IGR and sprays the shelves of the waitress stand where coffee cups and silverware are kept wetting everything down with the IGR. I grabbed the sprayer away from him and told him once again it is illegal to spray that stuff like that. He replied, well the girls told me they seen some bugs there so it needs to be sprayed. I told my boss I refused to go back there because if someone got sick from him trying to misuse our stuff I would be responsible. We ended up dropping them as a customer. Funny thing is a lot of people in the area talked about how great the food was. User Bythog concluded the topic with, Not who you asked, but I'm an inspector. I only show up unannounced. If you let operators know ahead of time they will hide things and attempt to clean up. We want as close to an actual working condition as possible. User Larache asked what is, deja vu. I get the feeling a few times a year maybe but yesterday was so intense I had to stop what I was doing because I knew what everyone was going to do and say next for a solid 20 to 30 seconds. It 100% felt like it had happened or I had seen it before. I was so overwhelmed I stopped and just watched it play out. User Rebutla answered the question with the following comment. The leading theory, that I'm aware of from my neuropsych classes, is a misfiling of information into memory. Typically things flow from working memory greater than short-term memory greater than long-term memory. Deja vu appears to be information being filed from conscious awareness directly into long-term memory, skipping working and short-term. The experience is seeing something while simultaneously remembering it as though it happened before, with only a slight delay which gives a confusing and unreal sensation. You ever notice how, if you try to remember exactly when it was you had already experienced the event, it seems to move from, wow this feels like it happened years ago, months. Maybe last week? Surely an hour? Before the experience finally ends? That's your brain correcting for the discrepancy, and literally moving it back into the right place, which is to say, 
real-time, and no longer a memory. User rats and snakes ask the next question. Why is euthanasia often the only option when a horse breaks its leg? User main situation 1600 answered with the following comment. Vet here. There are several reasons. Horses develop problems in their hooves if they don't move around enough or are forced to put weight on only three legs. You can think of their hoof as a giant fingernail, and the bone behind it is shaped like a wedge pointing forwards and towards the ground. Too much pressure on the other three hooves can cause severe pain, swelling, and separation of the bone from the hoof. In severe cases the bone in the hoof can puncture through the bottom or separate from the top. So then you might ask, why can't we make them rest while they heal? Well horses can't lie down for a long period of time. Not only can that negatively affect their hooves and muscle tone over time, but the pressure from their own body can restrict blood flow. Within two to four hours of a horse not being able to move from one side, they can develop muscle and nerve damage. In surgery, horses are often kept on giant foam pads to help reduce the pressure on their body. Keep in mind bones take months to heal. A horse cannot realistically be on the ground to wait for that. The other option is a sling for the horse to stand stationary and upright while it heals. But this creates challenges with pressure sores and excessive pressure on their breathing. There are other issues including dietary concerns and gastrointestinal effects, but in short, it is very very hard to heal a broken bone in an animal that needs to constantly keep using that bone to survive. Edit. Also when horses break a bone in their leg, they tend to panic and start trying to run. The flailing they do can cause very severe injury to tendons, rip muscles, tear joints, and it's not uncommon that the bone rips through the skin, which creates a big risk of infection. So a broken leg in a horse is often much more severe and catastrophic than what we see in other animals. In some horses they flail so much from one broken leg that they break a second leg. User Gimp Toes asked the next question. Why does Down syndrome cause an almost identical face structure no matter the parent's genes? User Priyan Bacon replied with the following comment. You're assembling tables but each kit comes with one and a half set of certain parts. Instead of four legs, you get six along with all the mounting hardware. With your boss breathing behind your back, you can't exactly throw away the excess parts. Most assemblers, when given the extra material will end up putting the extra legs in the middle of the table on opposite sides. The appearance of the tables is different from intended but consistent among all the tables with six legs. This is how Down syndrome causes similar physical appearances. Humans typically have two of each chromosome, one per parent. People with Down syndrome have an extra third 21st chromosome. This causes their cells to express those genes 1.5 times the normal amount. The genes written on that chromosome have many effects on the body and having more of them will affect the body in similar ways among people with Down syndrome. The 1.5x production of genes on chromosome 21 causes similar physical appearances among people with Down syndrome.
Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. User the Alexa 19 asked the next question. Why can't we recycle plastic in the same way we do for metal? Melt it and remold it? User Eric Panic commented the following. Well, for one, polymers degrade when melted, so you can't just turn a pet water bottle into a new pet water bottle. It won't have the same properties anymore. You can use post-consumer recycled pet in something else, like a CPET microwave dinner tray. But even then you can't just use all of it, you can only use a small percentage of it. Edit. That, something else, can, in fact, be a new bottle, but it will almost certainly be mixed with virgin material and won't be 100% recycled. For two, you can't mix types of plastics, which means that either consumers have to be exceptional at separating their types of plastic, by which I mean the cap and ring on your water bottle has to be separated since they're probably PP while the bottle itself is PET. Or we have to have people sort through garbage bags full of recycling to separate it, which adds a hell of a lot to the cost. There's also the fact that most plastics have some additives in them, for one reason or another, and plastics with certain additives can't be mixed with others. For three, any contaminants, adhesives from stickers, residue from food or drink, etc., have to be washed off to the point where they're as close to completely gone as possible, which is basically impossible and also adds a ton of labor, again increasing the cost dramatically. This is also true for paper, cardboard. Stop recycling your greasy pizza boxes, they can't be recycled if there's food or grease stuck to them. Edit. This may not be true, I'm not sure. My city explicitly says not to recycle pizza boxes with grease on them, but why MMV? Maybe someone with more experience in recycling, or paper, cardboard, can chime in on this one. For four, not all plastics are thermoplastics, thermosetting polymers cannot be melted down. They'll just burn up and release a ton of pollutants into the air. And obviously you can't mix thermoplastic polymers and thermosetting polymers. And for five, it's largely just not feasible to use post-consumer recycled plastics because it's one, extremely expensive to buy and two, can be extremely difficult to work into your existing process while maintaining quality and matching the needed performance without using so little that it's basically irrelevant. You're paying through the nose to use a tiny amount of the stuff you bought just to be able to put a label on your product that says, contains post-consumer recycled material. Basically, plastic recycling, while it is done to some extent, is much more limited than the public has been led to believe, and in an amount of cases that would shock the average person, is outright impossible. I guarantee that 80-90% to 90 of the plastic items people put in their recycling bin actually end up in a landfill or incinerated because they can't actually be recycled for a myriad of reasons. Source. I work in QA at a plastics manufacturer. User Blue Dream added the following. Restaurant worker here. We also have a baler. 
everything comes in a boxes inside a small box and we take the ingredients out and portion them in plastic bags for every portion, or even half portions. You might think dining in uses less plastic since meals are served on reusable plates. Wrong let's take a typical steak dinner for example. The 6 ounces sirloin is wrapped individually in a plastic vac seal when frozen. Prep opens the plastic and wraps the steak, individually, in plastic wrap. A side of broccoli is in its own plastic bag. Each portion. Whatever sauce is used is in a plastic bag and has to have a brand new plastic bag every single night. This isn't just us being careless, half of this stuff is required by law. We have to change containers every night and wrap stuff in saran wrap because foil for some reason violates some health code. Yes, it might cut down on food waste, which is more costly than a few thousand plastic bags. But we are adding heaps of plastic to landfills. The only thing we can recycle are bottles and cardboard. User Atticus117 asked the next question. How after 5,000 years of humanity surviving off of bread do we have so many people within the last decade who are entirely allergic to gluten? User P3Tunia answered with the following comment. We don't know. There are a number of theories about this. To clarify, while the increase may be exaggerated by people who falsely claim intolerance when they probably have other health issues, or are hypochondriacs, there is actually an increase in people with diagnosable gluten intolerance. And gluten intolerance is different than celiac. I'm taking here about gluten intolerance. Some possible causes include changes in the gut microbiome and changes in how we process and make bread. Changes in the gut microbiome are a likely cause, contributor but the causes and effects of that are just stating to be understood, and barely. So I won't go into that too much, but if anyone has questions I may be able to answer. On the processing side, one interesting theory is that the germ of wheat helps us process the gluten in some way. It has lots of nutrients, vitamins, fats, etc. Modern wheat flour, even most whole grain stuff, is made by separating the germ from the rest of the wheat first, then processing. This causes the flour to keep longer but removes all those nutrients. This is why flour, cereals need to be fortified. However, we only fortify with the vitamins and minerals for which we notice obvious deficiencies. So it's entirely feasible that we are neglecting to add something back into the flour that helps some people not develop gluten intolerance. This may be via some immune response or due to changes caused in the gut microbe. E.g. we are no longer giving some micronutrients to a specific bacteria in our gut so it dies out. That bacteria helped us process gluten or a byproduct and without its help we get sick. It's also possible that our body just needs some nutrient in the germ to process gluten efficiently. We really just don't know. Until relatively recently we didn't even know bacteria could survive in your gut. So expecting the scientific community to have a solid understanding of the gut microbiome now is absurd. These questions span the fields of nutrition, microbial ecology, microbe-host interactions, immunology, and more. I'm sure there are hundreds of plausible explanations, but we are very far away from definitively answering most questions related to the gut microbe. We do know that it affects digestive health, mood, weight, and all kinds of other human physiology. 
What we don't know is how to bend it to our will or how it causes all of these things. We do know that the answer is complicated. How do different bacteria interact with each other in your gut, and then with your body? We also don't know much about that. But we're learning. There is a unique soup of maybe 1,000 species of bacteria in your gut, and they are mostly different than the species that live in mine. We are just starting to learn how specific individual species of bacteria can affect their hosts. But even with this research, we don't think that it will be the same in everyone. Example. Maybe bacteria A has effect B on me, but it has effect C on you, because I have bacteria Q in my gut and you don't, and bacteria Q is necessary for effect B now consider that X1000 species, and that a genetic component also affects this, and diet and stress levels and fitness also affect this. See where I'm going? We do know that the gut microbe is influenced by stress, diet, sleep, environmental exposure, your parents, exercise, infection, travel, antibiotics, alcohol consumption, genetics, epigenetics, which is affected by all of these things and more, social habits, sun exposure, etc. Just to name a few. The extent to which these affect each person is probably highly variable. So asking about specific solutions or a quick fix is a waste of time, especially on the internet. And if you have a shitty diet, especially one high in carbs and sugar, or high stress levels, or you drink a lot, addressing those first is probably a smarter solution than asking about wheat germ and special bread and probiotics. May work in some cases for some people sometimes, and usually not as a fix, but as a supplement. It's just not well studied enough and GMOs, no evidence of them affecting any of this or even a feasible mechanism for how they would. User Squirrel Tail further added. I will add to this comment, since I relate a lot to it. To clarify, I went to the doctor and we were never able to exactly identify the cause, if it was a gluten intolerance, allergy to wheat or yeast, or what, but we treated it like a gluten intolerance. After I came back from living in Korea for a year and a half, I began eating bread products like crazy again. I didn't eat much bread while in Korea. The bread there was very different. But I did have specific symptoms whenever I did eat bread occasionally, and when I drank alcohol. Before going to Korea I ate bread regularly, and was able to drink. When I came to Canada, I ate a lot of bread, but rarely drank a bit on that later. And I developed weird symptoms that I have had before, but never made the connection. I'd get extremely tired, exhausted, cramps, dizziness, vomiting, and fevers, never registering a temperature, but hot to touch. I had a couple of times when I was so sick I would just try to sleep off the symptoms. I went to the doctor and she advised me to monitor what I ate, but I kinda ignored that for a couple of months and just continued on. In January the symptoms got intense, and the pattern really started to emerge. I'd eat bread get super sick, vomiting excessively 13 times in one day on an empty stomach. So I'd eat soup only, didn't feel like having any bread, recover, then start eating bread again then go through the same process of feeling sick again with the same symptoms. Went to the doctor again and she suggested it might be a gluten intolerance or something similar, and that it could be the drastic change in diet. One thing I should note though I had some of these symptoms develop while in Korea when I drank alcohol. At first I could drink three soju bottles with no problem, think weaker vodka, 
size of a cooler's bottle. But soon I developed these fevers and vomiting that would get me sick for at least 24 hours later. Even after just having one shot, or just a bit of alcohol, I drank other things too. Coming back from Canada I found wine did the same thing to me, and I did experience the same thing when eating potato chips that had a large amount of yeast extract as part of the flavoring. So whatever it was, yeast or gluten specifically, it's really hard to really determine. All I can say my symptoms of fevers and vomiting and feeling exhausted were very real and really affected me for a long time. Just like a gluten intolerance rather than celiac, which would cause immediate symptoms, rather than a delayed appearance of symptoms. The strategy the doctor came up with for me was to go gluten-free and slowly try and reintroduce gluten products back into my diet while also taking a probiotic to heal my gut. It's been four months, and I've been able to have the occasional bread thing about once a week without any symptoms, and even had a glass of wine recently and had minimal symptoms, felt a bit feverish. For me, I am tired of some people claiming that I was wrong for treating it as a gluten intolerance because it doesn't exist, or jumping the gun and say I should go to a doctor to get a professional opinion when I asked about going gluten-free. But my symptoms were severe and real, and like I said, although my doctor and I treated it as a gluten intolerance we weren't able to identify exactly what it was. But going gluten-free helped, and I do find USEERP3 Tunia's explanation of the microbiome really applied to my situation. If anything, even if you don't think gluten intolerance is a thing, at least it has been able to give celiacs and those with similar allergies a lot more options when it comes to gluten-free products. That's it for today's episode of Reddit Readings. Bye. Do you enjoy science, spooky stories, and all things paranormal? We do too. While we would love for most paranormal stories to be true, we are here to tell you that they probably aren't. But that doesn't make them any less fun to speculate about. We are the Spooky Science Sisters podcast. In this podcast, we bring you bi-weekly discussions on possible scientific explanations behind the supernatural. Backed up by research articles and other credible sources, we do deep dives into things like archaeology and physics and share in-depth discussions with topic experts. Visit us at SpookySciencesters.com to listen to a couple of skeptics debunk some of your favorite alien encounters, cryptid sightings, and ghost stories with science, sass, and a significant amount of laughter. Thank you and stay spooky. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Mm -hmm.
Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.